I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 29th, 2015. For this special end-of-the-year show, we'll share a speech of Hunter Lovins. Lovins is a resident of Boulder County who is a world-renowned advocate of regenerative energy. with a look at some holiday events for science buffs. This holiday week and weekend, if you're looking for some stuff to do, the Denver Museum of Science is open much of the time. Check out their website for some details. Also, this Saturday, CU Boulder's Fisk Planetarium will offer you their documentary, Solar Superstorms. This movie looks at one of the most powerful solar eruptions to hit Earth in recorded history. That solar storm is known as the Carrington event of 1859. The show describes how that highly electrified, magnetized megastorm affected the Earth and society back in 1859, and where we're the most vulnerable to similar systems today. Then the show explores the latest scientific research being done to better understand and predict future solar storm eruptions. CU researchers and Fisk Planetarium collaborated on this particular production. Saturday's presentation of Solar Superstorms starts at 9 p.m. There is a follow-up showing on Sunday, January 10th, starting at 4.30 p.m. to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. One of the world's leading voices for the environment is urging the world to work for even more than a sustainable economy. She says it's time for a regenerative economy. That's a message from Boulder County resident Hunter Lovins. Lovins heads up Natural Capitalism Solutions, and she's a sought-after speaker around the world, as well as here in Colorado. To give you an idea about what the vision of Lovins is for a regenerative economy, here's an excerpt from one of her recent talks. Don't do this because it will put you in a very bad mood, but you can Google near-term human extinction. There are websites saying humans go extinct by 2050. I tracked into this when I was working on uh, a project I'm doing with the Club of Rome on can we avoid collapse? And it put me in an extremely bad mood. (laughs) I was going the next day to speak to the open working group at the United Nations that was putting together the sustainable development goals. This was the last meeting they had before they set the goals. And a group of us were asked to come and talk to them. And Dr. Kevin Noonan, who works with Rockstorm, was there. And I said, Kevin, have you seen this stuff? He said, yeah. I said, is it true? 
He said, we all know the situation is dire. But he said, no, on balance, I don't think we go extinct by 2050. And he said, the work that you're doing, the work that we're all trying to do, is to create an option space for life. He said, I think we can do it. Do you? And I said, hell yeah. So I've been working with a team of folk. <clears throat> David Johnston, who's in the back of the room, Ann and Sandy Butterfield, the Prime Minister of Bhutan, who a couple years ago called a number of us to Bhutan and said to me, Hunter, I want you to reinvent the global economy. It's like, me? But I pulled together some of the brightest minds I can find. Ashok Kosla, who runs Development Alternatives in India, Dr. Robert Costanza, Dr. Jacqueline McGlade, Dr. Ida Kubashevsky. Together we've created a little group called ASAP, Alliance for Sustainability and Prosperity. John Fullerton, John was 18 years at J.P. Morgan. He walked away in 2001, left as managing director. He just walked away. He said, this isn't right. And on a bright September day, he went down to Wall Street to see some of his buddies. And along about Canal Street, somebody said they just flew a plane into one of the towers. And he emerged to see the other one come down and started walking north. Took him all day to get home. Built a room in his barn and started reading, read Limits to Growth, read E.F. Schumacher, read Herman Daly, read Natural Capitalism. About three years ago, he created a little group called Capital Institute to try to transform finance. He said, I know finance, and it, it is what is driving all of the impact that we're seeing. He said, impact investing, all investment has impact. So he and I wrote a little piece in Fast Company that you can get if you want the shorthand version of it. One of the things that he said is, here's, how, here's the situation today. We, the planet people, are in service to the economy. So after 9-11, our president said, go shopping. <coughs> Tom Friedman said, isn't there something more you could ask of the American people? <coughs> but it's true. We exist to serve the economy, which exists to serve finance. We are very efficient at flowing money to the top. What's wrong with this picture? It's wrong way around. Finance is a tool to bring liquidity to a real economy which is in service to life. John has laid out eight principles of what he calls regenerative capitalism. And you can go to the Capital Institute website and download this document. Right relationship. This owes back to Bob Costanza, another of the fathers of ecological economics, who says the economy exists within society which exists within the biosphere. And we need to understand this relationship. Holistic wealth. Wealth is more than money. It's community. It's knowing who you can go to for help. It's well-being. A regenerative system is inherently entrepreneurial. It's innovative. It adapts. 
The sci-fi writer William Gibson said, the future's already here, it's just not widely distributed. (laughs) We have all the technologies that we need to solve all of the problems facing us. I like to start with efficiency. In the last year, year and a bit, year and a half, there has been an extraordinary sea change. It started with Citigroup issuing a report called Energy Darwinism, in which they said this is the era of renewables. Because of the alarming fall in the price of solar. Alarming to who? They said if you build a new coal or nuclear plant, anything central station, within the first quarter of its life, it is going to be rendered uncompetitive by these advancing renewable technologies. They said... Yes, you can get renewables now on offer at $0.05 a kilowatt hour. Actually, it's $0.3.7 now in Nevada, utility-scale solar. But they said, we discount that because that's subsidized. Uh, Hint to city, all energy is subsidized, and the incumbent technologies, the coal, oil, nuclear, gas get at least 12 times the subsidies that go to all forms of renewables. We spend more subsidizing fossil energy as a globe than we spend on health care. But never mind. What Citi said that was interesting was the 10-year unsubsidized forward price of gas, which they said is the cheapest, 11 cents a kilowatt hour. 10-year unsubsidized forward price of solar, 10 cents a kilowatt hour. They said it's over. This is the era of renewables. The National Bank of Abu Dhabi. These are not the kind of folk that you are going to think of as your beady-eyed hippies. Two to four cents per kilowatt hour by 2050. Four to six cents by 2020. That's the running cost of a natural gas plant. So all this fracking that's going on, it may not have the long life that our current governor thinks it ought to. This change can happen very fast. California went from 1.9% of its electricity from solar in 2013 to 5% in 2014. Japan after Fukushima. A gigawatt is roughly a nuclear-sized chunk of electricity. China. You know, we all say, oh, we're not going to do anything until China does. Yeah, well, China is. And these numbers change every time I go back and look at them to put together a new show. China is continuing to make new commitments. The latest one this week is 150 gigawatts of renewables by 2020. China now reckons to be 80% renewably powered by 2050. Renewables are winning. It's a China figure. What's interesting now with the UN climate meeting coming up, we've failed year on year on year. I wear on my hat a pin from Kyoto. I was there for COP3. When we negotiated a global treaty to put a price on carbon, to create a market to trade carbon, and we thought we'd done it, we'd won. Till the U.S. Senate said no. 
And ever since, the world has been trying to come up with a new mechanism. So recently they hit on this notion of INDCs, Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. This is not a binding commitment. It's a contribution. And now countries are starting to trump each other. India came out and said 40% renewables by 2030. Brazil then said 43%. It's like, wow, this is cool. We're having a race to the top. Here's where it gets fun. Stanford professor named Tony Seba has a book out called Clean Disruption. He says the world will be 100% solar by 2030. Wow. He says because of four reasons. The fall in the price of solar, the fall in the price of energy storage, electric vehicles, and yes, that is my leaf sitting out there, and self-driving vehicles. This is the triumph of the sun. He said, you're going to hit global grid parity. That's where the solar on your roof is as cheap as the electricity coming out of the wall socket by 2017 for 80% of the world. All U.S. states, grid parity by 2016. How the world is changing. Little Tesla, valued at more than half the market cap of General Motors, despite selling 300 times fewer cars. How is that possible? What is Tesla's business model? It's not a car company. Batteries, bingo. It's a battery company. And when you have affordable storage and a whole lot of solar, wind, other renewables, you have fixed firm power. That's the point at which solar wins. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. You're listening to an excerpt from a talk by Eldorado Springs resident Hunter Lovins about how to move toward a regenerative economy. Lovins heads up natural capitalism solutions, and you can find out more by Googling that term, natural capitalism solutions, to reach her website. Now, let's return to Hunter Lovins. EVs are pretty cool. 2,000 plus moving parts in an internal combustion engine, 18 in an EV. When I bought mine, I bought it because I was invited down to Denver to debate the frackers. They had a really good guy up against me. And he had the last word. He said, look, you want our product, we're going to drill it, you're going to buy it. (laughs) I went home in a bad mood. And the next morning my husband said, Hey, you want to go test drive a leaf? I said, yeah, I do. Peppy little thing. Man, I'm used to the idea of an electric golf cart. You step out. So far, I have smoked a Porsche, a Mercedes, a BMW, and a Mustang. Because EVs have torque. They go real fast up to the point at which you're at the speed limit. And beyond that, if the, if the guys want to go roaring past me, they can see the Boulder Sheriff. So as we're buying this thing, the guy says, oh, you don't need that piece of paper. I said, what's that? He said, it's the emissions report. 
I said, what's the maintenance? He said, rotate the tires. I said, you're kidding. It's a better car. Now, yes, it is range limited. Next year it won't be. And the Tesla isn't all ready. So here's the solar system at my ranch. Five kilowatt system. And my leaf. If the utility is nice to me, I do what I do now. I'm grid interconnected. And on a hot summer afternoon when I'm not home, my system is chunking out electrons that goes to, in my case, Poudre Valley. In your case, for a little while yet, Excel. And... They can sell it to idiots who want air conditioning. If they are not nice to me, I buy one of these things, or a Tesla wall, although the Tesla wall is, what, two years back ordered. They haven't even produced them yet. This is the Bosch or LG 5-kilowatt storage system, and I cut the tie. I leave the grid, which is why Steve Chu said the utilities are in danger of being FedExed, just like the post office got FedExed. The utilities are going to have to change their business model. The, all the transmission that we have is underused. About, only about 40% of the central station capacity is in use. And these things are not terribly efficient. Which is why we're now starting to hear talk about the death spiral of the electric utilities. And in Europe... They're losing money at a great rate. $600 billion in value over the past five years. Eon, RWE, the two big ones. First nine months of 2014 over 2013, RWE's profits down 60%, Eon down 91%. Why? Because they took a write-off. They said, right, we're out of coal and nuclear. We're just going to sell those assets and become a distributed utility moving renewable generation around where people want it. This is not a red or a blue issue. My friend Jim Woolsey used to run the CIA. You've got to worry about yourself when you have a friend who runs the CIA. He used to drive a, well, probably still does, drive a plug-in hybrid car with a bumper sticker on the back said, Osama bin Laden hates my car. He sees this as a national security issue. Jim is most assuredly not a liberal. He runs the car off the solar panels on his roof and is an investor into renewable energy. This isn't a red or a blue issue. This is an economic issue. 2014, the Carbon Disclosure Project. CDP was, <laughs> it was a group of kids in the UK. Well, Paul Dickinson had a little gray hair who about a decade or so ago, just because, sent out a survey to the biggest companies on Earth saying, what's your carbon footprint? As you might imagine, the companies ignored them for a year or two as Tom Karnak, who ran North American CDP and is currently the special assistant to Christina Figueres at UNFCCC, I'll see Tom in Paris and said, if you are backed by institutional investors with now $97 trillion in assets, he said the companies can refuse to answer you for a year or two, but not forever. CDP now gets reports from essentially every major company on earth. A lot of cities, a lot of national governments. 
And what they have found in tracking these reports is that the companies that are leading in measuring and managing their carbon footprint are in building sustainability into the core of their business have 18% higher return on investment than the companies that are lagging, 67% higher than the companies that refuse to report. Who died and made CDP God? Walmart. Question number one on the Walmart scorecard, do you measure your carbon footprint? Question number two, do you report to CDP? We're changing the world through wild-ass ideas, through kids that won't take no for an answer, working with the big companies, working with the governments. We can do it. If we get our heads straight. We think we're here because of this big brain sitting up on top of our shoulders. No, we're not. We're here because of six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. We need to reinvent agriculture while we're reinventing energy. The way we're doing it now is wholly unsustainable. And we think, we are told by folk like Monsanto, by the big ag folk, that this is the answer. Again, no, it's not. Unctad report. The only way to feed the world is smallholder organic agriculture. And when you do that, when you start practicing regenerative agriculture, you start rebuilding the health of the soil. When the pioneers first came out this way, they, they found 10 feet of thick black soil. It's now inches worth. We have decarbonized the soil and in so doing contributed to climate change. Well, let's reverse it. If we increased soil carbon 2%, we would soak up all the human-emitted carbon ever in history. How do you do that? A man named Alan Savory. The Savory Institute is headquartered here in Boulder. This is uh, from a TED talk he gave that I highly recommend, in which he is showing how using grazing animals in the way in which nature and grazing animals co-evolved with the grasslands the grasslands are the world's second largest carbon sink after the oceans. Dense packed by predators. They, if, you're, if you've got a wolf prowling around your edges, the safest place to be is in the middle of the herd. So everybody keeps trying to get into the middle. They eat everything. They chop it up. They fertilize it. And then they move on. They don't come back until there's grass there again. Very different than the way we ranch. And it works, and it's more profitable. And it's what people want. It's healthier. When you feed corn to cattle, you have all the environmental harm and cost to the farmer of growing all the corn. It's very water-intensive, energy-intensive. And it's not healthy for the cow. Turns the omega-3 oil into omega-6, destroys the conjugated linoleic acids, so people are going to grass beef in droves because of the health. So it's more profitable to the farmers and the ranchers. Again, there is a business case for most of this. It also gives us what we want more of, which is jobs. My friend Occam Steiner runs UN Environment, reckons that 
The greener economy will be half the global workforce by 2030. And as I said, it's happening, whether it be reports in Harvard Business Review or sustainability certifications or my friend Yvonne Chouinard getting the cover of Fortune or the evil empire going green. Trust me, when Walmart goes green, there's a business case. They are not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. But actually, some corporate leaders are. You've been listening to Hunter Levins, head of Natural Capitalism Solutions. If you'd like to hear more about her vision, we'll post the full one-and-a-half-hour version of this talk, including questions and answer sessions, on our website later today. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. Today's show was produced by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the composer, Fox. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. Here's a happy new year full of science. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger.